Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. In the 1800s, women were expected to depend on and obey their husbands in all things. There was a cultural belief that women weren't capable of making intelligent decisions, so their lives were entirely controlled by men. For their own protection, of course. This assumed lack of intelligence also made it impossible for men to believe that a woman could possibly concoct a murderous plot and manipulate others to do her bidding. They were sorely mistaken. Our story today takes place in the now historic Cherry Hill Farm near Albany, New York. Cherry Hill was built in 1787 for Philip Van Rensler, who made his fortune as a merchant and a farmer. He died in 1798, but his family continued to live there for centuries. In the 1820s, his wife Maria was still living there. She occupied the north side of the house, and their son Philip Jr. occupied the south side with his wife Catherine and four of their seven children. The southwest bedroom was rented to Catherine's niece Elsie and her husband John Whipple and their young son. Elsie Whipple had a reputation for being hysterical and spoiled, frequently throwing tantrums when she didn't get her way. Her father had died when she was very young, and Elsie was raised and pampered by a mother and grandmother who had the same characteristics. She was given freedom and control of her life that wasn't common for women back then. No one had successfully reined her in, and she entered adolescence with a sense of entitlement. Well, sometimes when you're raised in a single-parent household, they overcompensate by spoiling the kids in order to fill that void of a missing parent. That's true. Besides, the standard for what was hysterical back then was very different than what we think of it today. If a woman stood up for what she wanted out of life, she was seen as unruly. At age 14, Elsie eloped with her next-door neighbor, John Whipple, who was nine years her senior. Elsie's grandfather, Captain Abraham Lansing, was livid. He'd given her father money and property that now passed to Elsie and would now be controlled by John Whipple. Abraham felt that John was only after Elsie's money and went to court trying to get his financial gifts back, but he lost the suit. Abraham died before there was any reconciliation, but the rest of the family eventually warmed to John. He was an intelligent businessman and grew his wife's inheritance to a small fortune. Abraham had been a successful businessman and his family held a prominent place in the community. They were rich enough to own 11 slaves who tended to the household and the farm and lived in the basement of the house. In total, there were 17 people living at Cherry Hill Farm. It didn't take long for Elsie to lose interest in John. She felt dominated and controlled in the relationship. Back then, that was exactly what was expected of a marriage, but Elsie had been raised with an unusual amount of freedom and resented John's control. Okay, you know I have my own personal feelings about slave owners, and I really don't understand why this family was so lazy. They needed 11 of them to do their everyday task. Agreed. They had a lot of family members living there. They totally could have split the work if they were willing to get their hands dirty, but that's not the rich people way. How dare them take care of their own home and possessions? <laughs> <laughs> One night, Elsie and her cousin went to a local tavern for some fun. They were drinking and dancing, and Elsie was flirting with the tavern owner shamelessly. 
A man going by the name Joseph Orton was working at the bar that night and noticed Elsie. He wanted her more than he had ever wanted anything. So much so that the very next day, he tracked her down and took a job as a handyman at her family home. He was a servant and she was the lady of the house, but at least living in the basement, he was close to her. Most everyone called him Doc because he wore glasses and knew how to read and write, which was very rare for the working class back then. Joseph Orton wasn't actually his real name either. His name was Jesse Strang and was originally from Fishkill, New York. Jesse had abandoned his wife and children a few years earlier, believing that his wife had been unfaithful. For a short time, he lived in Ohio, but when returning to New York in 1826, all of his belongings were accidentally shipped south by mistake. He took it as a sign and chose to fake his own death and assumed the new name of Joseph Orton. Well, you know the best route to take when your spouse cheats on you is to abandon them altogether and the children you're responsible for, I suppose. (laughs) But at least he didn't kill them, right? He abandoned his wife because he thought she was unfaithful, but then goes after another man's wife? Hypocritical much? I sense a little bit of karma coming his way, but what do I know? Jesse quickly fell in love with Elsie from afar and was encouraged by her frequent flirting. He would see her often, and they would sometimes talk and flirt, but he had no real indication of whether she was interested in him or not. Then one day, out of nowhere, Elsie told Jesse to write her a letter and tell her his feelings. Jesse was confused. He knew Elsie was married and didn't want any trouble, but he couldn't pass up this opportunity. This is how he later described that first letter. Dear Elsie, I have seriously considered on it as you requested of me yesterday, and I have concluded to compose a few lines to you. I thought that it was not my duty to write very freely, not knowing your objective. Perhaps it is to get some of my writing to show your husband as you are a married woman, and if that is your intention, it is my wish for you to let me know it, for it is a thing that I scorn to make a disturbance between you and your husband. But if, on the other hand, it is out of pure affections, I should be quite happy to have the information in your handwriting. I hope that you will not take any offense in my manner of writing to you, as we are perfect strangers to each other. But I hope that those few lines may find free expression with you. After I find out your motive, I can write more freely on the subject, and as for my affections, they are quite favorable. I shall expect an answer from you if that is your motive. So I remain your well-wisher, Joseph Orton. Remember, Conjurers, this is the 1800s, so the writing was different, but the message is clear. Let me give you guys the 2020 version. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hey, Elsie, I've been thinking pretty heavy about the things you said to me yesterday, and I figured out a few things I'd like to say. I didn't feel like it was my place to write to you without knowing what your endgame is. You're clearly a married woman, and maybe your intentions are to use me in order to get back at your husband, and I want no part in that. However, if you're really into me, that would be amazing because I'm into you. I hope I didn't offend you since we started passing letters through our poor slaves that didn't ask for any of this. Once I know your motives aren't shicey, I wouldn't mind knocking some boots if you know what I mean. Slide in my DMs and let me know what's real. I'm out. (laughs) Joseph Orton. That is fantastic. (laughs) 
I think that about sums it up. It sounded like something I've heard in my <laughs> lifetime, <sure>. so. <laughs> Half an hour after receiving the letter, Elsie handed Jesse her response. She did not mince words. She wrote, my motive is out of pure love for you. Several times in the letter, she expressed her love for him and ended the letter with, I remain your true and affectionate lover until death separates us. This started a series of daily love letters between the two. To avoid suspicions, they passed the letters to servants and sometimes little children of the house to deliver on their behalf. Their desire for each other was heightened by the fact that it was next to impossible to be alone together with so many people in the house. However, they did occasionally find the opportunity for more intimate contacts from time to time. Well, I think this is proof that you can indeed fall in love with someone via text message without ever having any real physical contact. So, conjurers, if you're one of those people that think that this kind of love is possible and find those haters constantly shutting you down, tell them to listen to episode 19 of Crime and Conjure. (laughs) Maybe you should wait and see how this love story ends. (laughs) Good point. Our episodes never really end on a high note. (laughs) Divorce was not an option for Elsie back then. Aside from the social scandal it would have caused, it would leave Elsie penniless. In their letters, Elsie expressed her willingness to run away with Jesse, but he told her that they would need at least $1,200 to get established somewhere else, which would have been over $30,000 in today's money. Elsie had a fortune worth much more than that, but by the laws of the time, it belonged to her husband. Women couldn't touch a dime while their husbands were still living. The lovers decided murder was their best option. John's death would leave Elsie single and rich, providing the perfect opportunity for her and Jesse to be together. One night, together at a quiet country inn, they made a pledge that neither would inform on the other. If one of them was caught, the other would confess and they would hang together. In the spring of 1827, they put their plan into action. First, they tried poison. Jesse bought some arsenic in Albany, and Elsie put it in the tea that her husband took every evening. She didn't give him enough, though, and while it gave him stomach cramps, the poison didn't kill him. Okay, anyone that goes out and buys arsenic is obviously up to no good. Oh, yeah. Don't you find it odd that he thought they needed the equivalent of $30,000 to start over somewhere new? He started over after leaving his wife with literally nothing. This is true. So the poisoning fails. What's next? Next, they discussed using a hitman. Jesse believed he could hire a man in Montreal for $300, but they didn't have that kind of money available. Finally, they decided that Jesse would have to shoot John himself. Elsie suggested that he use one of her husband's dueling pistols, but Jesse thought that was too risky, and besides, he preferred rifles. He bought a $25 flintlock, and they started laying the groundwork for their plan. During this time, John started to get suspicious and kept a loaded gun nearby. Elsie stole the bullet and gave it to Jesse, insisting that they needed to act now. They spread rumors that some men were out to kill John over a bad business deal, setting suspicion away from either of them. They started reporting that they had seen prowlers around the house, and Elsie put on a convincing act of concern for her husband's welfare. In reality, 
Elsie was having Jesse practice climbing onto the shed outside John's office window, but it made too much noise. She had him try out different scenarios, and they finally decided that if he was barefoot, he would be able to climb up quietly enough. They practiced shooting the rifle to get a feel for how much kick it had and testing its accuracy through glass. Finally, they felt confident that they had covered all of the bases and were ready to put their plan into action. I personally would probably be looking at Elsie and Jesse like, how is it that you two are the only ones spotting these so-called prowlers? Right? It doesn't sound like they were being very sneaky about this plan of theirs. They're bound to get caught and they're making risky moves. Sham will tell us more about what this devious couple did next after a short break. The evening of May 7th in 1827, Jesse took off his coat and boots and climbed with a rifle onto the shed attached to the back of Cherry Hill. Standing in the dark, he could see into John's office window without being seen himself. John and Elsie were both in the room talking to Elsie's cousin, Abraham. Elsie left the room with an excuse that she was going to bring some tea for the men. John stood up with his back to the window, and Jesse fired the rifle, hitting John under his left arm. John looked around and asked, my God, what was that? John then stumbled to the doorway while his cousin-in-law stared in shock. Then John collapsed dead at the top of the stairs. Abraham immediately jumps up and started outside to find the shooter, but the family stops him. They were afraid the killer or killers may be waiting outside, ready to shoot anyone else that may leave that house. As soon as John fell, Jesse jumped off the shed and ran to a ravine behind the house where he buried the rifle. He then hurried to put his coat and boots back on and ran a mile to the local store to give himself an alibi. When he returned to the house, he acted shocked at the news that John had been murdered. No one in the house other than Elsie knew that Jesse was responsible, and they sent him back into town to get the coroner. They had this all worked out. That family had no idea they were sending the killer to go get the doctor. Yeah, that's the ultimate betrayal. Was the doctor able to figure anything out? Well, he then returned to Cherry Hill with the doctor and assisted the doctor in removing the bullet from John's body. The bullet had entered near John's left shoulder and lodged itself in his lung, which is what killed him. They held a coroner's inquest, which is where all of the men of the house would sit around the body and try to figure out what happened. Jesse was sworn in as a member of the coroner's jury. His opinion carried a lot of weight because he had assisted in the doctor examination. Oh my god, how nerve-wracking would it be to have to help examine the body of the person you just murdered? <laughs> He must have been sweating bullets, pun intended. I love it. <laughs> but that's wild to me that they trusted just about anyone to figure out the cause of death. What was the point of being a certified coroner if you just let a regular ass person join in? Right? Just anyone can sit around trying to solve the crime. <laughs> right? The next morning, the jury convened and Jesse gave testimony to what he thought had happened. He spoke passionately about prowlers he had seen outside the night before and the rumors of men out to get John. But Jesse had overplayed his hand, and his over-enthusiastic insistence that it had been prowlers made the coroner suspicious. Elsie and Jesse had planned to elope in Montreal, but the next day after the coroner's inquest concluded, Jesse was arrested. Jesse reminded police that he couldn't have done it because he had been on his way to the store at the time. This did cause some confusion at first, but later police ruled that he could have traveled the mile from Cherry Hill to the store in the time after John was shot. 
Jesse started to panic as they threatened him with the consequences of murder. Hoping for a lighter sentence, he confessed and told police where to find the buried rifle. He then tried to blame the entire plan on Elsie, saying that she had manipulated him and begged him to murder her husband. Two weeks later, Elsie was arrested as well. Clearly not a good liar. He folded at the first sign of pressure. I'm sure Elsie wasn't expecting that. While with her manipulation skills, she may have been somewhat prepared for him to mess everything up. Didn't they make a pact not to turn on each other? What made him confess? Jesse believed that if Elsie was convicted as well, her powerful family connections would get them both pardoned. But when his lawyer and prosecutor told him that nothing he said against Elsie would lighten his punishment, he withdrew his confession. Whenever they communicated in jail, Elsie reminded him that if he had not confessed, they might have gotten off scot-free and been in Montreal, as they originally planned. Jesse asked his lawyer, Calvin Pepper, to plant documents at Cherry Hill incriminating Elsie as the mastermind behind this plan. He couldn't provide the real letters showing that she had been behind it all along, and he had burned the letters she sent him. His lawyer refused and told him that he could not receive a lighter sentence no matter what he did. He had killed a member of a very powerful family, and he was going to pay the consequences. Uh, yeah. Too late to take it back now. If he wanted to have proof, he should have thought about that before burning her letters. Right. Especially since he did question Elsie's motives in the beginning. Why wouldn't you keep some of that in a form of blackmail? Exactly. I bet this trial was a big deal. Jesse's trial generated intense excitement. It had to be held in the assembly chamber of the state capitol because no other building was large enough to fit the crowd. Even then, the streets outside the chamber were packed with people who could not get in. Members of the household testified that they had heard Jesse spread rumors of the prowlers out to kill John. The merchants who sold him the rifle and the arsenic testified, as did the hotel keepers who had seen Jesse and Elsie together. With so many people living in that house, their affair had hardly been a secret. When slavery was finally abolished in New York that July, the family's last slave and cook, Dinah Jackson, was able to testify at Jesse's trial as well. She had helped the couple pass love letters, and she told the jury that Jesse had asked her if she would poison John's teas. When she said she wouldn't do it, he had kind of pretended that he had been joking. But it was Jesse's own confessions admitted in court, even though he had tried to withdraw them, it sealed his fate. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes before returning a verdict of guilty. These two had no clue how to cover their tracks. They never gave it a second thought involving Dinah in their scheme because she was a slave. They certainly underestimated her. Let me tell you something. I thrive to feel the level of pettiness that Dinah felt that day she got on that stand to bring down her oppressors. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened to Elsie? Three days after Jesse's trial, Elsie stood trial for aiding and abetting the murder of her husband. As Jesse suspected, Elsie was treated like a victim. In truth, the rifle had been bought with her money, she removed the curtain in John's room so Jesse could shoot clearly, and she was the one who had poisoned John's tea. Her defense attorney stood up and addressed the judge, saying, You can't possibly think that this woman was the mastermind of all of this. She's just a woman and clearly she couldn't have manipulated this criminal. Once the prosecution rested, the jury, without leaving their seats, pronounced Elsie not guilty on the spot and cleared of charges. Wow. She's just a woman. 
She literally got away with murder because men didn't think women were capable of violence. In this case, sexism worked in her favor. I mean, if there's ever a time to be okay with this statement, it was the 1800s when women were murdering their husbands for financial gain. (laughs) I think some men still underestimate women like this even today. Oh, for sure. After Jesse finished testifying on the stand at Elsie's trial, he was sentenced to death by hanging. Elsie let him take the fall. She admitted their affair, but denied any connection to the murder plot and got off scot-free. Elsie was an upper-class woman with a powerful family full of politicians, rich business tycoons, and war heroes. Jesse was just a working-class handyman, a servant in her family home. New York was not prepared to condemn a woman with ties to some of the most prominent families, regardless of the evidence. A local newspaper reporting on John's death described Jesse as a serpent and a fiend, while gently referring to Elsie as a bereaved widow. The rich always get away with too much, but this is ridiculous. One word. Privilege. Absolutely. The scandalous mix of sex, money, respected family names, and murder was a great draw to New York onlookers. On August 24th of 1827, Jesse was scheduled to be executed for the murder of John Whipple. His hanging attracted a crowd of nearly 40,000 people. Men, women, children, it was seriously a family affair to come watch a man be hung to death. Jesse's parents sold written copies of their son's confession to cover their legal fees at the event. The hanging was botched, and Jesse did not die right away when his body was dropped. He swung there for a half an hour, slowly suffocating as the crowd watched in a twisted amusement. The size of the crowd appalled officials. Even worse is the number of women that showed up to Jesse's hanging which officials felt should have been too delicate to want to watch such a horrific thing. The overall distaste of the event led to it being the last public execution in Albany, New York. Jesus, what a horrible way to go. I have never understood the fascination with public executions. It's not a community festival. It's the end of someone's life, people. Public executions are so disturbing, and to this day, I don't understand how people can participate, even for lethal injections. Back then, they were just having picnics and eating sandwiches as someone's lifeless body was just swinging for everyone to see. It's disgusting, really. So what happened to Elsie in the end? After the murder of her husband and the hanging of her lover, Elsie, now in full possession of her ill-gotten family wealth, left town to live in Brunswick, New Jersey. Elsie married Nathaniel Freeman, an old acquaintance from school, a year later. A few short years after they were married, her second husband died as well, and she moved back to New York, where she died soon after in 1832 at the age of 30. Nothing is known about the circumstances of her death, but it's possible that she may have fallen victim to the cholera epidemic that was sweeping through the Northeast that year. A second dead husband? Are we sure she didn't kill him too? I know we didn't find any information regarding this new husband, but in my personal opinion, that girl killed that man. (laughs) Totally possible. (laughs) The murder of John Whipple is only a small slice of Cherry Hill's story. Five generations of Van Rensselaers lived within its walls from 1787 to 1964. The historic Cherry Hill Foundation maintains some of 700,000 of the family's belongings, one of the largest collections in the USA. A 10-year restoration of the home's structural integrity was completed in 2019. But John's murder is by far the most popular draw for tourists. 
Education coordinator Shauna Riley hosts annual murder tours at the historic Cherry Hill. Every October, they reenact the shot that took John's life and display a tape outline of where John's body fell by the stairs. Tours like that were made for people like us. We have to go. These tours really are made for crime fanatics like us. Side note, my husband is not into true crime, so the last time we went to New York to visit my in-laws, I begged him to go see the Amityville Horror House, and he refused. So we definitely got to go, Steph. I will go to all of those things with you. Let's do it. (laughs) John Whipple can be found at the Albany Rural Cemetery, but some say he never left that house on Cherry Hill and still haunts it to this very day. Cherry Hill has made it onto New York's top nine most haunted list. An eerie specter is said to roam the first floor. Most say the ghost isn't hostile and doesn't seem to mind people being in the old house, but those who have seen it say that they sense a deep anger surrounding the phantom. Whether it's the ghost of John or Jesse is still an ongoing debate. Nearby, around the Eagle Street ravine where the gallows stood, many say they've seen the restless spirit of Jesse. He wears a robe and a hat trimmed with black, the same clothes he wore during his execution. I'm not surprised at all that they are haunting the place. They both died because of Elsie and she got away with it. Oh, I wouldn't be going anywhere until I spooked a few people. (laughs) The least I'm going to do is get my hauntings on, okay? Could John and Jesse be trapped here because Elsie was never held accountable? If Elsie had rights to her own family fortune, could this murder have been avoided altogether? This case led to a nationwide debate regarding the inequality of consequences for both issues of punishment for women that commit crimes, as well as leniency for people of prominent social status. These issues still plague our society today. Though it looks different in modern times, the inequality amongst genders, races, and social status still exists. The Sentencing Project is a leader in changing the way Americans think about crime and punishment. The Sentencing Project works for a fair and effective U.S. criminal justice system by producing groundbreaking research to promote reforms in sentencing policy, address unjust racial and social disparities in practice, and to advocate for alternatives to incarceration. For more information, visit www.sentencingproject.org or call 202-628-0871. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what is our conjure tip of the week? Today we want to talk about the well-known emeralds. Emeralds are a must-have for any married couple. It works to both enhance and strengthen love within one's marriage. It brings loyalty, unity, and unconditional love. It can also help heal emotions and help you be ready to forgive and apologize where needed. It's even said that it can signal unfaithfulness if it changes color. This stone, I think, would be perfect to gift for a wedding. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.